Hey, Ash. Welcome back to Breaking the Fourth Wall, where we engage in stimulating conversations about ways that we can promote positive change in musical theater. Thank you, everyone, again for listening every single week. Those of you that are new here, we just wanted to let you know that we have a new podcast episode coming out every single Monday morning, and this is our second season. And if this content has been valuable or helpful for you, please consider leaving us a review or giving us some stars. And also sharing this episode with someone that you think would find value in it, that you would think could listen to it and gain some knowledge or answer some questions or problems that they have been challenged with. With that said, let's dive into our episode this week. I wanted to talk about what actionable steps that heads of programs can take to immediately affect this much needed positive change in institutions as we are moving forward in our current time. This is a great conversation to have and one that I think is being had right now across so many college programs or training programs. Uh, and, uh, you know, students, potential students are holding program's feet to the fire to make sure that this much needed change is happening in real time and not, you know, extensively waiting, saying, oh, we need to go through all this administrative red tape. So yeah, so I'm excited to talk about this because I have a lot of ideas. So these are going to be ways and steps that you can move forward that, you know, don't require that administrative red tape. They don't take years to institute and they also don't take extensive you know, approval from committees. These are mm-hmm. things that you can be doing right now in your program, and we can't wait to share them with you. But before we do that, let's jump into our puzzler. So here's the question for this week. Name three musicals from the 1940s that feature what is known as a conditional love ballad. This is like a triple layered question. I know. This is like some deep knowledge. So many of you may be wondering, what the heck is a conditional love ballad? Let me give you kind of like a layman's term of the conditional love ballad, and then we will discover the answer at the very end of this episode. So basically, a conditional love ballad is basically a song that is introduced early between the two romantic leads often, or two characters that eventually will fall in love. Um, it's introduced early in their relationship, and they generally are singing a song about being in love without having actually fallen in love yet. And oftentimes, while singing the song, they begin the process of falling in love with each other. So if that gives you maybe a little bit of a hint as to uh, what the answers may be, we'll answer that together at the end. Let's start off with the first step that a program head can take. What do you think is the first step, Tim? Creating a mission, vision, and position that is rooted in the much-needed positive change that needs to occur within the institution. And the reason I say that is because a mission, vision, and position will guide all policy ideologies throughout the entire program. It will establish a culture. Uh, it will establish a common language for every faculty member that works within the program to abide by. And how have you already instituted this into your program and what are the effects that you have seen after after testing this out? Well, our mission moving forward for Fullerton College 
is dismantling racism, sexism, ableism, heteronormative cisgender dominance throughout the course of our curriculum. So what we're doing right now is we are looking at every aspect of the curriculum, syllabus content, we're, we're having conversations with the faculty and, and coming up with ways that we can make sure that we are all playing by the same rules and that we are honoring this ideology moving forward so that we are creating a safe space for every one of our students to thrive in and a safe space for all of our colleagues to thrive in. I want to ask you, because I know that, you know, as an educator, this is something that's on the forefront of your mind as well. In terms of syllabus, this is something that you can immediately affect right away in terms of how we phrase our syllabus, the language we use in our syllabus. What are some of the things that you can implement into the creation of a syllabus that creates an equitable playing field for all of our students? A few things can be considering the language that you utilize in the syllabus, encouraging the use of pronouns, encouraging just by you starting off and you saying in your syllabus, you know, your, your pronouns as well. And I think the best thing you can do is to allow a space in your syllabus to equate what you do in the classroom. For so long, our syllabus has said, you must not do this, right? Here's the don'ts that you can't do. And that's so negative. So as soon as the student reads the syllabus, oftentimes before they even meet you in person because you email it to them or you have it in your LMS, I always put it in my Canvas shells, no matter what type of class it is, that is going to give them a feeling of how you are going to approach that classroom. So going through your syllabus and just making sure that the wording that you're using is inclusive, supportive, and comes from a, a positive atmosphere. It really sets the tone. And it, and it honors every type of student that may possibly come through the door, anticipating that you are going to be working with a diverse array of students from all backgrounds. And if you, if you were to empathize and put yourselves in the shoes of any one of those students, how would they feel reading the content of your syllabus? And does it reflect them? Does, do they feel seen? Does their culture and who they are uh, as a person feel represented? Yeah, absolutely. Another element that you might want to consider is putting in some type of language that is going to allow folks that have disabilities. How are you going to allow them to best be involved in the classroom because we all learn at, a, at different ways. And so I like to include in my syllabus a, a, a little paragraph about how I'm going to be teaching, that I'm going to be using slides, that I'm mm -hmm. going to be speaking, that they can record me if they'd like to, but they have to ask permission, um, that if they need anything specific, if, if there's something that they need that I can do to help I would love to have a, a conversation with them where they can feel free to email me. And I put that in there so that they know that I'm opening the door. If yes. you need, you know, to sit down with me for a bit after class, if you need a, uh, someone to take notes for you, if you need me to, if you have approval from the school and you are registered with the school that you need me to send you the slides, whatever it is, I want to make sure that that door is open. So you feel comfortable coming to me saying, Hey, this is really going to help me. How can you accommodate me? And, and, oh, sorry. And, and often students don't know what's 
available to them campus-wide in terms of the services. I'm very, very proud of the of the services that Fullerton College offers to each and every one of your, their students. And they're always constantly innovating and coming up with new ideas to make a more equitable and learning environment for all students. So removing the stigma and the fear of actually approaching those services and saying, I need assistance to make my educational environment more positive um, and, and kind of breaking down that barrier. Including resources. I like to have a little resources section, whatever school you're teaching at, like you mentioned. What are resources that might help people? Is there a food bank on campus? Mm -hmm. There are some campuses that have clothing and attire. So if you need to go to an interview or have a presentation in class, that you can go and they'll they'll give you or loan you or just you can pull from their closet, you know, a suit or some or pants or a blazer. All of those resources that campuses offer, like you said, that most students don't know about or perhaps might not feel comfortable asking, put a list of those resources on there for them. Absolutely. I think that is so incredibly important that we give them those resources. So if they need it, it's there for them. Mm -hmm. Another area that uh, I think we can address immediately to affect positive change within curriculum, within culture, program culture, is holding ourselves accountable. I think for so long as the gatekeepers of the education within theater arts, uh, you know, our students come to us and they expect us to disseminate, to be the, to be the ones that disseminate the, the, the appropriate information and knowledge about the craft of theater arts, specifically musical theater. But we need to be okay knowing that we are all right now, as we navigate these waters of creating more anti-racist, a more, uh, a culture of education that celebrates all humans, we need to make sure that our students know that we are human as well and that we are going to make mistakes in this process because we are imperfect people. And by even just saying that, oftentimes it's very difficult for, a, for an educator to say in front of 35 students or even 15 students to say, you know what, at the onset of this semester, we are going to talk about culture. We are going to talk about race. We're going to talk about critical race theory within theater arts and, and systemic racism in our craft. And I'm not going to be perfect. And sometimes I'm going to say things that I need to be held accountable by you. And I hope that you feel safe to approach me and say, you know, something you said today kind of struck the wrong chord with me. Can we talk about it? Yes, we can. And thank you for bringing that to my attention so that we can make sure that we are consistently creating a safe environment. So I think it's imperative that we let our students know that we are imperfect, but we are consistently educating ourselves about this work and that this is all a journey. I just wanted to also quickly mention that a great way that you can make immediate change in the classroom is to choose textbooks and resources that are going to support the different types of voices and experiences that are out there. This is something that I've been so passionate about in musical theater is why am I using textbooks that are all <laughs> written by white men? That's actually the next point I was going to talk about too. Great. Let's yeah. go into it. Yeah. No, th this idea of decentering the white centric ideology within our curriculum, our syllabus, our student learning outcomes, uh, our textbooks, our teaching practices, you're so right on point. Um, we have to make sure that we aren't just acknowledging one culture, one race of people in our teaching practices. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, I, I totally agree with you. We are on the same mindset. It's <laughs> perfect. I wasn't even looking at the notes for the, today, the show notes that we had made. Just moving right on forward. So yes, one thing I have been doing in my classes, and I know what you and I talk about this quite often, is what textbooks are we using? 
whether they are required or whether they are suggested, because many classes, our textbooks are suggested, they're not Mm -hmm. required. And I am going through, through every single course and every single syllabus and saying, is this textbook relevant right now? Is it written by someone that I want to be continued to represent us in our field? Or if not, what textbooks can I Mm-hmm. go out and find to replace them. I'm not saying those textbooks aren't worthy. I'm not saying they're not valuable. I am saying that I want to create a diverse array of resources that our students are learning from and that I am learning from. And I think that we as educators, because we are complicit in having learned traditionally white art as the central narrative of 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 our educational experience, we have to rethink what makes up the traditional canon of musical theater. And we have to argue that work expressing other cultural perspectives is is uh, is other than, and not equal equal to, um, and that's really important because we've always thought, well, you know, George M. Cohan is the father of American musical theater. I actually disagree, but that's but we've how said we've that been, we've said that how many times because we were taught that instead of saying. Well, how who inspired George M. Cohan? Are we talking about the earliest inceptions of uh, of ragtime and how ragtime evolved, and who are the pioneers that made up ragtime music, which really lays a foundation for for jazz and musical theater as we know it? Um, so, rethinking the traditional canon as essentially white art form is something that's I think really important. Oh, go ahead. I just wanted to mention, it's so interesting that you brought up, you know, the father of American musical theater, the father of American <laughs> comedy, the, the the running joke when I teach history is another slide. Oh, the next person we're talking about, the father of, blah, 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 the father. I say, And I always say, I wonder where we're going to get to. The mother the of. The mother. Or the of, person of. <laughs> the per- I'm like, where, like, I, I, and I am taking that out of my curriculum too. Mm-hmm. Um, in my taking slides. the pronouns, the, the specific pronouns out of the yes, equation. and learning about what other people do. I, did I not know about? So yes, that's the running joke. Though they're always like, "Oh, great, the next father of." Um, something else that as it relates to all of this is ensuring that at least fifty percent of your uh, texts of your assignment readings are from people of diverse voices, other than just. cisgendered white men. So really looking at that prior to start of your semester and prior to the creation of your syllabus to say, okay, am I offering a cultural balance in terms of the reading, listening assignments that I'm going to include in my curriculum? And when you look at that material and you realize, (laughs) do it right now, please, please, please. And you realize, oh, wait, you're right. That's all written by mm-hmm. those types of folks because that's what I've always done. I've always taught this class the same way. Learn. Go read some books if you want a great resource. I started this resource a couple of years ago and I would love for people to continue add, adding to it. I am all, I always put it in the blogs. I make these podcasts, all blogs, my website, ashleyespinosa.com. And I'm going to include this resource, which is a Google Doc that I have made public for people to edit and add to, to help us create a resource of musical theater books that are written by Mm non-white men. And I'm just pulling from it and reading more books. You know, even this summer, I've tons of more books. I reframing the musical is one I just read. I it was so fascinating, it was so amazing. 
But to have a resource where we can go, okay, I do need something different. Where can I look as a little Rolodex? And so I've created that Google Doc. Um, I will link it, but sometimes the link doesn't work in the description box, but you can find it on my website under resources. And also you can find it on my website under the blog for this episode. Yeah. Another point, rethinking our grading practices. I think this is something we can do immediately as well. It doesn't take permission or administrative red tape. Um, Often we are subscribed to the traditional A, B, C, D, F format. And if anyone has actually gone and done history to understand the legacy of how the grading format as formula as we know it today, it is really designed and rooted in systemic racism. I'm going to say it because it is not equitable in any way, shape, or form. I think we need to look at that. Uh, Something we did this semester, which I was really excited about in my MT class, was I informed my students that no two of you are going to learn the same. You are all different human beings. You all come from a different experience. Your theatrical training or education or understanding of the theatrical landscape is very different coming into this class. But we, our goal as educators is to get you to arrive at the same destination. For each of you, how you arrive at that destination is going to vary. So what I did was instead of we had a rubric. We had a very objective rubric. You know, did you turn in the assignment? Did you fulfill these ABC things? But the actual grade was submitted in the form of almost like an essay saying, these are the things that you achieved, that you're working towards, that you you really improved upon. I want to encourage you to keep moving in this direction as we move into the next unit. Then the last part of that process when it comes to uh, initiating a final grade is what did you think about your process? Asking the student to give a critical analysis of their own um, their own body of work from that first unit. And that's how we kind of look at and analyze the first unit of work as opposed to you did the assignment not good and here's and I'm not going to give you a specific reasoning why. You get a D. And now all of a sudden we're in a product-oriented mindset versus a process-oriented. And I think we need to reshift that idea that I am a human. I am a process. I am new to this experience, you know, to this type of training. And as long as my growth is measurable over the course of a semester, that is going to be what earns me the grade that I should have versus constantly just showing up and, you know, I get, I get an assignment based on if the teacher likes me or not is going to give me an A or a B. That is the biggest mistake. And I'm going to be really honest in this. This is, that is the biggest mistake that I see educators make at the college level. I'm going to give you a grade at the end of the semester based on how I feel you did. Mm-hmm. And that word feel it does not help anyone. How am I supposed to know that the process of what I'm doing, the work that I am creating is not going in the direction that the teacher is guiding them? You have to have a rubric. It is the number one thing that has been so successful in our work. I know both of you and I have talked about this extensively. Mm-hmm. We're always updating our rubrics and, and um, kind of bouncing ideas off of each other is every single assignment, I don't care if it's a performance-based assignment, a written-based assignment, a presentation, whatever it is, it needs to have a guideline of this is what I'm looking for. An objective guideline. Yes. And not you should have performed better than you did last time. Or you made me feel emotional watching your performance. Yes. That's or it just super wasn't, subjective. Yes, it just wasn't up to the level that you should be doing. 
And you know, I had this in grad school. I actually shared this on my Instagram stories. It's not there anymore, but it's still there in my archive. Um, I was going through a bunch of old grad work and I was horrified that we didn't have rubrics and it was just, you got a B this semester because you just didn't live up to the level that we expect for you to be at. Mm -hmm. And I'm just sitting here going, well, could we have had a conversation? I I didn't come from- you know, a conservatory style training. So I just didn't know. But if you had received some kind of communication from the instructor that said, it could have been any forms that said, here are the things that you really achieved. And here are the things that I want you to continue to improve upon in preparation for the next unit. And then how did you feel about your growth from the start day one to the end of the unit? Wouldn't that make you feel one empowered about your process, but also make you feel like, okay, there are no surprises. I know what what's expected of me moving forward. Your final grade, you should already know what that is before the grade is submitted and you look at your transcript. You'd be like, of course, yeah, I know. I know I got an A because I, I did this stuff and, and I was in constant communication with a professor about my, the grading practice. Or I know I didn't you know, get an mm-hmm. A because I didn't do that type of work or I didn't commit to that or whatever the reason was. But I also think that it is a conversation that needs to happen. And I know that sometimes you know, we teach classes that are up to 100 people. Mm-hmm. And we teach classes that are five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve people, and that has to that that can require some different assessments. Yeah. But the conversation and the, and the communication also needs to be rooted in positive encouragement, because everybody is coming from a different background, and and everybody is learning at a different rate, and so that ha- that 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 response, that communication, has to be. Maybe the student doesn't realize what you are explaining. Maybe they don't realize their potential. Mm -hmm. And you may not know what they're going through that moment. I mean, I have students that we've both worked with. They are living out of the car. They are homeless. Mm -hmm. They are working three jobs. They are supporting their parents. You don't know what is going on behind the scenes. So I do think it needs to be rooted in some positivity and kind of understanding that you may not know what other things that student has on their plate to be keeping them from progressing in your class. Yeah. Another point that I think we can immediately affect into our uh, program structure is, is actually training workshops in training faculty and students in harm prevention. Um, I know recently I saw one of one of my friends and colleagues uh, who heads the program at Carnegie Mellon. They have a new class that actually I think it's for their first year college students take. It's like about anti-racism in theater arts. They're actually learning about harm prevention as a class. And I think this is a brilliant step forward. So if you're hearing this, Rick, I am celebrating you because that is something I think every program should look at doing is having a seminar class from the onset to teach students about the terminology uh, that that can be that can be harmful and how to not use it. Uh, you know what what are the things that um, cause harm in in programs uh, throughout the four years of someone's learning or two years of someone's learning. What are uh, uh, how do we how do we prevent uh, harm in the rehearsal process and the production process? I think we can bring professionals onto the campus to teach workshops and courses to both faculty and students to create a more safe space for them to thrive in. What are a few ways that you could do that in a production? Say you're directing a production, right? And you you can get approval for any class. Mm-hmm. What's, a, what's a quick way that you could implement that even in the smallest form at the beginning of rehearsal before a production gets going? 
work with a trained anti-racism expert to immediately engage the cast from the first day of rehearsal. So someone that can come in that is trained in this work, that establishes a culture of anti-racist practices, of celebrating culture, of, of making sure that the students have terminology and know what is harm and what is what what constitutes a safe space versus an unsafe space for rehearsal. I think if those conversations happen immediately, maybe on the first day, first two days of rehearsal, I think it puts everybody on, on an even playing field so that as you move into the process, we have a terminology, we have a, lang- a common language that we're working from, a foundation that we're working from, a culture of rehearsal and production that is safe and equitable for everyone. One more point that is important that we institute into our our future curriculum and immediately affect into our curriculum is giving students more creative ownership over their art. For too long, have we had this patriarchal system of education, of, of, of teaching theater and creating theater that either the director or the head of the program is the gatekeeper of all knowledge and disseminator of all art that is going to exist on the campus or within the program. How do we in the classroom, I'm going to ask this to you, how do we in the classroom and in the production process empower our students to have more of a creative voice in the creation of their art? I want to start off by just saying that this does need to be a positive conversation as well. Many times we let emotions, and and me, I am guilty of this as well, we let emotions take over because of our experiences. Just as we want to create a positive communication with our students, we also want to have a positive communication among us as colleagues and students with us as educators. Most people that are have been teaching for quite a long time do not understand, they may not know these elements, these ideas that will help the students because the students are are scared to say something to them mm-hmm. of the repercussions or Fear the backlash or whatever. Yeah. Or the quote blacklist, you know, idea. And so I want to start this with a positive um, response as well. The best advice I could give is to try different elements in your curriculum in the way that you approach your material that is different from what you have done in the past. And one thing that really helped me was having surveys. And I'm talking anonymous surveys that I would create on Canvas that I would have the students do, whether it's a production, face-to-face class, online class, hybrid class, whatever it is, where the students could give you feedback anonymously, not linked to their name, not linked to their grade, and they could anonymously share their feelings. That was Mm -hmm. so valuable that I could have people say, you know, I, this student said this thing to me in class and my, and you didn't do anything about it. Or, you know, this element really helped me. I loved getting your weekly feedback or having a discussion really helped me. So I would say first off is you can immediately implement a survey at the beginning of the semester. What are you looking forward to? What do you need in this class? What are you hoping to get out of it? And then at the end. I also want to address how we select material for our students in performance-based classes. In the past, we had been selected one song and that was the song that we'd work on for X amount of weeks. And, and it was, and, and we work our tail off on it. Right. Um, what if, and this is something I currently do, we presented our students with a couple different song selections and empowered them to listen to that material 
and make the choice themselves as to which song they connect to the most. And, and w- let it be a free-flowing exchange of, uh, of ideas in order to select the appropriate song for them. I did this this semester. I've been doing it for the past couple of semesters, and it has been so fruitful because the students feel empowered. They feel like they have more ownership. They're much more passionate about the material when we're working on it. One thing I did, and I love that you said that. I also actually, before I actually mention this, I wanted to ask you if you would also share something that I'm, I've kind of been uh, picking up on and, and wanting to do lately as well. The survey that you created the past year that you asked them, will you, will you kind of describe that a bit? So something that you can also integrate into your uh, class is a something like a performer intake survey. So as students come into the semester prior to day one, they fill out a series of questions that help inform you about their experience prior to the class. Uh, it has been really successful in my experience, and I feel so much more prepared and know who the students are prior to day one. And it allows me to start, I use that as a means by which to select material or start working with the students to select material. And I usually ask about like, you know, anywhere between eight or 10 questions, very simple questions uh, that they can answer in a, in a drop-down menu or a true and false. We use Canvas, so I can integrate it as an, a Canvas quiz uh, that, they, that doesn't have any points attached to it that they can just fill out. Um, you know, for example, let me give you one question. Um, what types of material are you most interested in working on? And we have a drop-down menu that, you know, covers every, every style of song you can think of. Um, you know, are you typically, have in the past, were you typecast in certain roles? And if so, do you feel you connected to those roles? Or do you like the idea of being typed into roles? Or would you rather uh, have the freedom to express yourself in a myriad of different kinds of ways? And of course, most students want to be free to express themselves. Um what kind of instructor do you connect to? Someone that is tells you what to do, someone that works with you, uh, you know, that empowers you. So all these different questions you can ask that can really empower the instructor to give the most fruitful experience to the student. Those were all such wonderful tips to try out. And the best way that you can do this is to try a couple of these ideas or something you've been thinking about, seeing if it works. And if it doesn't work, be flexible to try something different next semester. Let's wrap back around to our puzzler. Tim, you want to ask the question and let's talk about the answer together? Yes, absolutely. Here's the question. Name three musicals from the 1940s that feature a conditional love ballad. Uh, I have an idea that the word love is going to be in those three. (laughs) So do you know what the answers are? Of course I do. All right. (laughs) So uh, let's, uh, the first one, give me the first one. Oklahoma, people will say we're in love. That's right. People that was the alto version. <laughs> and uh, and of course, this is one of the first songs, if not the first song, that Curly and Lori, Lori, the two characters, sing together. They're very much still. They're kind of flirting with each other, but they're not. They're still a little bit at odds with each other. But they're starting to sing about the about what it might be like if people perceive them to be in love. Well, at the same time, they're starting to build affections towards each other. Uh, what about for the second one? Carousel, if I loved you. Da, the, da, da, da. the famous bench scene, which really is characteristically in terms of the mechanics of, you know, the integration of song and text is, is really a masterclass. But again, uh, two characters, our lead characters, uh, talking about what it might be like if they were to be in love. 
And in that process, they've just met each other within minutes and they are falling in love. By the end, they share a kiss together at the end of the scene. And the third and the one, one is? Almost Like Being in Love from Brigadoon. I don't remember. What is that tune? Almost Like Being in Love. What a rare day, da 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 why it's almost like being, being in, in love. love. So again, all three of these songs feature what is known as the conditional love ballad, uh, basically where the characters are singing about love. They haven't quite fallen in love with each other yet, but through the course of the, the song and the, and the scene, they begin that process. And it often happens early in their relationship within the context of the show. Falling in love... In a five-minute or less song. <laughs> Only in musicals. <laughs> Only in musicals. And yes, these are musicals from 19, the 1940s, but it is part of our history and we are still learning about it so that we can understand where we came from and where we are going in the future of musical theater. Have a wonderful week, everybody. Bye.